Phil Fernbach is an Associate Professor of Marketing and Director of the Center for Research on Consumer Financial Decision Making at the University of Colorado Boulder Lead School of Business. He has published widely in the top journals in Cognitive Science, Consumer Research and Marketing, and was the recipient of the Early Career Award for Contributions to Consumer Research. He's co-author of The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, which was chosen as a New York Times editor's pick. He's also written for the New York Times and Harvard Business Review, and his research has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, National Public Radio, and the BBC. He received his PhD in Cognitive Science from Brown University and his undergraduate degree in Philosophy from Williams College. He teaches data analytics and behavioral science to undergraduates and master's students. Professor Philip Fernbach, welcome to The Creative Process. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. So we'll begin your give a reading from The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, that you co-authored with Steve Sloman. Just set it up a bit for us, the passage you're going to read. I'm going to read from the very beginning, and we're going to tell a story about one of the most crazy events in the history of the United States. Three soldiers sat in a bunker surrounded by three-foot-thick concrete walls chatting about home. The conversation slowed and then stopped. The cement walls shook and the ground wobbled like jello. 30,000 feet above them, in a B-36, crew members coughed and sputtered as heat and smoke filled their cabin, and dozens of lights and alarms blared. Meanwhile, 80 miles due east, the crew of a Japanese fishing trawler, the not-so-lucky Lucky Dragon Number 5, stood on deck, staring with terror and wonder at the horizon. The date was March 1st, 1954 and they were all in a remote part of the Pacific Ocean witnessing the largest explosion in the history of humankind. The detonation of a thermonuclear fusion bomb nicknamed Shrimp, codenamed Castle Bravo. But something was terribly wrong. The military men sitting in a bunker on Bikini Atoll, close to Ground Zero, had witnessed nuclear detonations before and had expected a shockwave to pass by about 45 seconds after the blast. Instead, the Earth shook. That was not supposed to happen. The crew of the B-36 flying a scientific mission to sample the fallout cloud and take radiological measurements were supposed to be at a safe altitude, yet their plane blistered in the heat. All these people were lucky compared to the crew of the Daigo Fuku Ryu Maru. Two hours after the blast, a cloud of fallout blew over the boat and rained radioactive debris on the fishermen for several hours. Almost immediately, the crew exhibited symptoms of acute radiation sickness, bleeding gums, nausea, burns, and one of them died a few days later in a Tokyo hospital. Before the blast, the U.S. Navy had escorted several fishing vessels beyond the danger zone, but that ship was already outside the area the Navy considered dangerous. Most distressing of all, a few hours later, the fallout cloud passed over the inhabited atolls Rongelap and Utirik, irradiating the native populations. Those people have never been the same. They were evacuated three days later after suffering acute radiation sickness and temporarily moved to another island. They were returned to the atoll three years later, but were evacuated again after rates of cancer spiked. The children got the worst of it. They are still waiting to go home. The explanation for all this horror is that the blast force was much larger than expected. The power of nuclear weapons is measured in terms of TNT equivalents. The little boy fission bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945 exploded with a force of 16 kilotons of TNT, enough to completely obliterate much of the city and kill about 100,000 people. The scientists behind shrimp expected it to have a blast 
force of about six megatons, around 300 times as powerful as Little Boy. But shrimp exploded with a force of 15 megatons, nearly a thousand times as powerful as Little Boy. The scientists knew the explosion would be big, but they were off by a factor of about three. The error was due to a misunderstanding of the properties of one of the major components of the bomb, an element called lithium-7. Before Castle Bravo, lithium-7 was believed to be relatively inert. In fact, lithium-7 reacts strongly when bombarded with neutrons, often decaying into an unstable isotope of hydrogen, which fuses with other hydrogen atoms, giving off more neutrons and releasing a great deal of energy. Compounding the error, the teams in charge of evaluating the wind patterns failed to predict the easterly direction of winds at higher altitudes that pushed the fallout cloud over the inhabited atolls. This story illustrates a fundamental paradox of humankind. The human mind is both genius and pathetic, brilliant and idiotic. People are capable of the most remarkable feats, achievements that defy the gods. We went from discovering the atomic nucleus in 1911 to megaton nuclear weapons in just over 40 years. We have mastered fire, created democratic institutions, stood on the moon and developed genetically modified tomatoes. And yet we are equally capable of the most remarkable demonstrations of hubris and foolhardiness. Each of us is error prone, sometimes irrational and often ignorant. It is incredible that humans are capable of building thermonuclear bombs. It is equally incredible that humans do in fact build thermonuclear bombs and blow them up even when they don't fully understand how they work. It is incredible that we have developed governance systems and economies that provide the comforts of modern life, even though most of us have only a vague sense of how those systems work. And yet human society works amazingly well, at least when we're not irradiating native populations. How is it that people can simultaneously bowl us over with their ingenuity and disappoint us with their ignorance? How have we mastered so much despite how limited our understanding often is? These are the questions we will try to answer in this book. Wow, very big questions. I also love the courage of asking some questions that, you know, a lot of things that we just take for granted. But really, why do we think we know so much more than we do? Why did cognition evolve? What is thinking for? <laughs> well, you asked so many big questions in that first question. So I'm not even sure where to start. Why don't we start with, I'm going to elaborate sort of the two main themes of our book. The name of the book is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And the two major themes in the book are encapsulated in both the title and the subtitle of the book. And the title, The Knowledge Illusion, reflects this very pervasive and profound phenomenon, which is that we tend to overestimate our understanding of the world. And the second part of it has to do with the communal nature of knowledge, why we never think alone. And we believe that those two ideas are closely interrelated. Human beings are not built for individual cognition. We're not built to master every detail about the world. Our minds are not made for storing a lot of details about the way that the world works because the world is just too complex for any one individual to master too much about it. Instead, what human beings are really designed for is collaborative cognition. We distribute knowledge across our communities and we take, and, and we have sort of a division of cognitive labor where some people master certain pieces and other people master others. And then we, we developed cognitive capacities for jointly pursuing complex goals together by sharing knowledge. And so that seems to be at the core of what makes human beings really spectacular and really special. However, the fact that knowledge works that way, where individuals don't know very much, but the group knows a lot. 
what ends up happening is just by virtue of participating in a group, what we call a community of knowledge, we tend to feel like we understand things better than we do because we're surrounded by other people who might have the information. The information is sort of distributed across the community. And what happens is we participate in that community and then we start to get the feeling that we understand things better than we do. We take on strong positions around complex issues that, for instance, the group together might have the expertise to sort of develop a position on that, but the individuals don't. And yet, because everybody around us is talking about it and, and projecting strong feelings about it, we sort of get the feeling that we understand it better than we do. Yeah. As you point out, we don't understand our democracies. We don't understand the basic toilet that we use every day. Yeah. That's one of my favorite examples. And one of the examples that we start the book with is the idea of a toilet, because it's such a mundane, like obvious thing that we interact with all the time. There's a, one of the foundational studies that we draw on in the book was done by a couple of psychologists named Rosenblatt and Kyle. Frank Kyle is a psychologist at Yale who is one of the major inspirations for a lot of the work that we talk about in the book. They coined the term illusion of explanatory depth and did the original studies where basically what they had people do is they asked them about kind of everyday household objects like toilets or ballpoint pens or zippers or any, anything you can think of. And the first stage of the study is they asked people to reflect on how well they understand those things, but not to deeply think about it. Just kind of give your sense of how well you understand understand that thing. And your listeners can do the same. So if I just asked you, how well do you understand how a toilet works? You might be nodding your head and say, oh, I have some decent idea of how a toilet works. But now the trick is in the second part of the experiment, I'm now going to ask you to explain to me exactly in detail how the mechanism works. And then what you find is pretty remarkable. People kind of reach in inside and they realize they have just about nothing to say. And they're, they're, people are often shocked by that. They're surprised by it. They say, whoa, I thought I knew that. I thought somewhere in my head was an annotated plumbing diagram that I could sort of just look at it somewhere in my brain and I could tell you exactly how the flushing mechanism worked. But then, you know, you, I can count on, on one hand all the people I've ever asked to try to explain this stuff. And it's been hundreds of people and, you know, nobody can explain it. That's just not true of toilets. That's kind of true of everything. Our ability to explain the details of mechanisms about the world is incredibly poor most of the time, unless you're really deeply in your area of expertise. So we all have things that we do actually know about, but our sense of how well we understand things almost always outstrips how much we actually understand them. They called that the illusion of explanatory depth, which is, you know, a very cool term, but a little jargony. So we often talk about a knowledge illusion or an illusion of understanding which is a little more digestible, you know, for your average person. That illusion of explanatory depth or the knowledge illusion, it leads to overconfidence. It leads to a number of things. I know that in your life, at your research institute, you're often advising or using your research to advise on patterns, market behavior. Just go into some of the consequences of this shallow knowledge that we use. Yes, that's a great question. So I do work in a business school, so I do spend quite a bit of time thinking about business topics and stuff like that. And in fact, the way that our book is set up is Steve and I are both cognitive scientists. So we get really deep into cognition, how the mind works, what thinking is for, and all this kind of really deep topics about the mind in the first half of the book. And then we talk about various different applications in the second half of the book. There certainly are implications for decision-making in business and economics and so on. However, some of my favorite and some that I find the most interesting have to do with political discourse. 
and discourse around controversial scientific issues, the kinds of things that we argue about as a society like vaccination or climate change and these kinds of things. Because in those areas, we have these really intractable, challenging debates as a society that have immense implications for societal well-being. And they're often very complicated. They're very complicated. People don't understand them well. And yet we have this passionate, often destructive kind of discourse where it's very hard to have any kind of meaningful conversation across the aisle. I think that our work has a lot of implications for those kinds of things. And that's where kind of my passion really lies with this work in terms of this stuff. That being said, I mean, I see this kind of stuff all the time in other areas as well. For instance, I published a paper earlier this year about overconfidence among investors. So one thing that's very common is that investors tend to be very overconfident. And I think that's because often investors can suffer from an illusion of knowledge. I have a very interesting paper I wrote with a former student by the name of Andy Long, who's now a professor in the South in Louisiana, LSU. And he and I worked on this project for a while, which is how, when we feel like we understand what a business does, we feel like overconfident about our understanding of the investment risk. So you're like, oh, I know that Starbucks sells coffee. Therefore, I can interpret what the stock is going to do. You know, there's this old philosophy popularized by a number of people, but Warren Buffett is one of the most famous associated with it, which is this invest in what you know. And people often take that too far and think that, oh, because I understand something about the business. It's kind of like this understandable business that I know that I understand the investment risk. So that's, a, that's another example. So I see this stuff coming up all over the place. Another very important one, which I think is relevant to, to you and your audience probably is education. You know, I'm a teacher. This is something that's so critical to teaching because as students, we often feel like we get something uh, we get that kind of feeling of understanding that eureka moment or that aha moment. It occurs much earlier than we've actually mastered a topic. And so getting students to dig in deeper and realize that there's a lot more that they don't understand doesn't feel good a lot of the time. It can kind of feel challenging, you know? So in the educational realm, I think is another one where these illusions of understanding are really important. I'd like to go more into education and a few things there. I'm glad you mentioned the environment. We have a One Planet podcast, so that's something that we talk about. But just on the back of this, the illusions created by businesses or startups, I'm just enjoying that television show, The Dropout, Elizabeth oh. Holmes. It's it just a classic playing into people's belief that if you put some people's names on a board. Yeah. Well, so the interesting thing there, which is the extent to which when a, a founder or an entrepreneur is overconfident, the extent to which that overconfidence is sort of put on so that they can encourage investment versus where they end up really believing. Uh, and I think there's often a fine line there. You know, it's often hard to discern. The entrepreneurship angle is one, and one that actually you get into in the book. And I want to raise another point with respect to that, which is overconfidence can be bad, but overconfidence also has upsides. And so entrepreneurs are famously overconfident. And if you look at startups, almost all of them fail. And they fail because it's really hard to start a new business and develop a new idea. And it's an extreme challenge. There's any idea that you come up with, there's a good chance that other people are working on it. There's, you know, you have to make the finances work. You have to deal with interpersonal challenges. I mean, starting a business is really hard. They mostly fail. Any successful entrepreneur, in the back of their head, they know that. And yet, when they pursue it, they sort of have to feel like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be 
the one who makes it. And if we didn't have that, if you didn't have some level of overconfidence, if you thought about everything that could go wrong and you weren't just sort of laser focused on what's going to go right, you might never try. We need the innovators out there who are willing to try and fail. And so there are upsides to this kind of overconfidence. Maybe not necessarily to every individual because it can lead to really bad outcomes for individuals sometimes. But as a society, having a vibrant entrepreneurial society is really important. And that sort of relies on people being overconfident a lot of the time. So we do get into this in the book, this sort of double-edged sword of overconfidence, which is that it certainly can lead to trouble, but it can also be very important sometimes. Yeah, I mean, another word for it is leadership and ideas and creativity. It's infectious. And if you don't know, then as you say, it's a collective project. So someone else in your group, some few individuals will, and you have to bank on them, but you have to give them that impetus. So it's a fine line. I would say probably it's not good in the medical industry to be making, maybe in the performing arts, it can be better harnessed. Yeah, so that's right. Overconfidence can be very dangerous, for sure, in a lot of contexts. There's this idea of, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the idea of a type one or a type two error, like whether you have a false positive or a false negative. Depending on the situation, both of those things can be very bad, but sometimes one is worse than the other. And so putting a drug out there that has a bad side effect or something like that could be very dangerous. And so like you want to be really careful to vet that. In other industries, it might be less of a problem to have something out there than has some kind of negative effect because the positive effect might outweigh that or something like that. So the benefits and risks of overconfidence probably depend a lot on the background factors that exist. And so you pose this very important question, what is thinking for? On the issue of the environment, we actually have many of the solutions that will bring us to net zero. It's a question of us implementing them and having the energy and political will to do it. And so the knowledge is that sometimes as you identify these two ways of thinking or fast thinking or slow thinking or however you like to frame it, that sometimes having too much knowledge just stops us from getting what needs to be done. Yeah, I think the environment is such a challenging problem. Two of the major reasons for that are that it's a commons problem. Basically, there's a greater good, um, and we all have to sacrifice a little bit individually to achieve that greater good. People tend to be self-interested. So those kinds of problems are really challenging because, you know, I'm sitting here going, should I cut back on my consumption or should I stop flying or whatever? That's a cost to me in order to accrue a benefit to the group. And, you know, some people are willing to do that, but a lot of people are. The other real challenge with it, with climate, is that the effects of climate are diffuse. They occur sort of slowly and over time. They're becoming more observable now, but they haven't been particularly observable to people. You know, it's like, oh, the world temperature is going to go up by a certain number of degrees over the next 50 to 100 years. And a lot of people look at that and they go, okay, but I got to pay my car bill like this week, you know? So it's hard for people to feel it viscerally as a real threat, I think. And both of those things combined are a real challenge. And then you layer in other things like, you know, incentives of oil companies or other kinds of legacy industries, which actually are incentivized 
in the opposite direction. And then that ends up entering into the political process in various ways and so on. So it's an extremely challenging problem to tackle. Interesting yeah. how you bring cognitive science to bear. There's an element of persuasion. There's an element yeah. of moral obligation. But also at this stage, a lot of people just don't know the number of profitable solutions that are out there. I'm I actually think the best path, I mean, so there is this idea that you can sort of convince people, persuade people. And, you know, that works to some extent, but a lot of the time it doesn't really work. There's this idea in psychology called choice architecture nudges. And one of the big ideas there is that it's often easier to change the environment than it is to change the decision maker. So for instance, like, you know, you could tell people stop eating so many chips. But if I have a bag of chips in front of me, I'm going to eat those chips, even if I don't want to. Like willpower fails. But if I take the chips and I lock them in a cupboard somewhere, then I don't eat the chips. You know what I mean? So, so this idea of changing the environment rather than the decision maker is really important. And I actually think that that's really going to be sort of golden pathway to getting us to a sustainable energy future. I'm not an expert on this, so you're just getting my personal opinion here. But what I see is that you get someone into, I drive a Tesla and it's like the best product I've ever owned. And the cost of ownership is so low that it's like shocking. You know, you, I plug that thing in, it costs me like $8 to charge it or something. And I, I am actually have a rental car right now, which is this giant gas car, which it was the only car they had and I had to take it. It's gigantic. It cost me like $80 to fill up the gas tank. So I think if you get people into it, into one of these things and they see the benefits and they see the cost parity, which is occurring now, you're going to see this transition happen just because it's actually now in people's self-interest. The same thing is true of sustainable power generation and battery storage. That is quickly dropping in price to where it's just going to make perfect sense for businesses to be going that route. Also sustainable um, trucking, I think is the same way because of the cost of maintenance is going to be so lower. So all of these parts of the economy I think the real thing that's going to happen is actually not psychology. It's not going to be convincing people. I think it's people seeing it with their own two eyes that it's actually in their interest. So I think this sort of theory that comes from this nudge world of change the environment, not the decision maker, um, I think that that's going to be really important. Now, one thing you said I do think is really important is that getting this information out there. And so I think getting people to understand the actual benefits of these things. You're not trying to like fool people into, you know, I always think of marketing as being most successful when you're selling a product that has a real sustainable benefit to the consumer. So it's like a mutually beneficial exchange. I don't think marketing works out in the long term when you're trying to convince people to buy something that's not actually in their interest. You know, people often think of marketers as like snake oil salesmen. You come up with some tricks to get people to buy something that's not really good for them. But I actually think marketing works best when you're actually providing the information, but in a compelling way that people can really understand it. To me, that's what marketing is really about when it comes to marketing a good product or a service. And so I agree with you that we need to do a good job of getting people to understand these benefits. And showing people that it's not just good for the environment, but it's actually good for them individually. And same thing for businesses. You were also on the advisory board of the McKinsey Company. I was for a time, but I'm not anymore. But basically, one of the things they're very interested in is what they call change management, which is helping organizations to improve their culture, to reorganize in a way that makes the company more productive. And they became very interested in behavioral science. So I was participating with McKinsey in terms of 
going there and talking around things like nudges and choice architecture, which I just mentioned. So yeah, I, I don't work, you know, for them. It's more of an advisory kind of sharing academic information. In a highly individualistic society, despite the proven benefits of collective knowledge and working together as detailed by Professor Fernbach thus far, it's crucial to note exactly why this collective is so important and ultimately good. I wanna take you through Plato's development of the five levels of cognition to illustrate this. Good is accepting both relative and absolute truth. This means that a person will accept what is otherwise widely accepted knowledge while also respecting that that knowledge is not necessarily certain in that it is not necessarily cosmically true. This acceptance is due to the combined effect of accepting both relative and absolute truth, which respectively are accepting the first four levels of cognition and accepting the ultimate uncertainty of the relative truth. Therefore, relative truth can be defined by the most superficial elements of knowledge, information which the vast majority of people share and agree upon after having endured more or less similar education systems, and absolute truth can be defined by philosophical thinking in general, by anyone. Hence, relative truth is uncertain because knowledge and thinking is perpetually changing and expanding. This is good because it allows for progression of humans, with the underlying assumption that this progression is for the greater good. Individuals of the prior description learn humility in never claiming to know that which is unknown. Rather, they use education to contribute to the progress of human understanding. This effect ripples because shifts in values are widespread. So, when an individual values education over ego, others are taught the same. In this sense, the effect is exponential. Therefore, it can be derived that the good is the willingness to sacrifice one's own ego in order to learn with the intent of contributing to the greater good. However, the good cannot be achieved without first achieving the first four preceding levels of cognition. The five levels of cognition can be explained through something already commonly understood, time. That is, most are unfamiliar with the idea of mental development occurring throughout the entire course of one's life as a cognitive manifestation that correlates with each progressive age in regards to both the individual's education and behavior. Babies and young children are educated in sensory ways, particularly involving hands-on art or music, and this is because it evokes their imagination, which is the necessary foundation for the next level of cognition, beliefs. When a child grows a bit older, they may begin to distinguish a certain right from wrong and form their own beliefs. This is because at this age, education involves reading stories with lessons or morals. However, beliefs can also often manifest themselves in children's stubbornness. Upon realizing they're capable of at least verbally making decisions for themselves, they abuse the right without first understanding what is good or bad for them. When they're slightly older, they begin learning theory of different kinds and how to form them, both in learning the sciences and humanities. This can manifest itself in primary formation of authentic individuality, in reference to how the individual starts behaving in day-to-day -day life, and more specifically, the outset of their political awareness. Eventually, as adults, they may achieve understanding after having endured an education system which stressed the prior three levels and having lived through both good and bad. Only after achieving these four levels of cognition is an individual then capable of achieving the fifth level, good. 
At some point, Socrates asks, what about someone who believes in beautiful things, but not the beautiful itself? So what about someone who believes in good things, but not the good itself? This question also indirectly highlights the distinction between the good and the preceding four cognitive tiers. Along the path to the good, only manifestations of good, like good things, are visible to an individual, versus at the end of the path, and the good is actually achieved. So one may ask, then how do I actually achieve the good if my entire life I'm working through the first four tiers? And the answer might just be, the good is contained within the pursuit of it. It is very interesting how cognitive science has many applications. And what drew you to the subject and why does it continue to be endlessly fascinating for you? What drew me to the topic? So as a kid, I was very interested in science. And I had two areas of science that I was very passionate about because I thought that they were the most mysterious. So I was interested in physics. I got interested in, in particle physics, astrophysics. I remember reading Stephen Hawking's books when I was a kid, and I just thought it was so amazing. I just had this deep kind of abiding curiosity about what the universe is all about and so on. And the other one is the mind, because the brain is the most complex object in the known universe. And we're making progress in the world of cognitive science, but we still don't really understand how the mind processes information where consciousness comes from, all these deep issues. Like we know that the mind is a kind of computer now, which is an advance over what we knew a hundred years ago, but we still don't know in a deep way, really what's going on, you know? So like, it, it's a very mysterious thing. And when I was in college, I actually studied philosophy and I actually thought about being a doctor for a little while with pre-med and so on. I studied a lot of science and I was always good at math, but I felt like I was kind of better at conceptual thinking than I was in math. And I felt like to do physics at the highest of high levels, I always thought like your math has to be off the charts. And I was good at, you know, but I wasn't off the charts at math, like some of my friends. So I ended up deciding to, well, I left and did business for a while, but I, I wanted to come back and go to graduate school to study cognitive science because that connected with my interest in science, but also philosophy and so on. So that's what drew me to it. What keeps me excited and interesting is I've gravitated towards working on these kind of issues around high-level cognition and these kind of intractable issues that I talked about before, which I find so weird and fascinating. Things like conspiracy theories, for instance. You know, it's like, these are crazy things, and yet people come to believe them. And how is that possible? And a lot of people say, oh, those people are just a bunch of idiots. And when you dig into it, no, they're not, actually. It actually turns out that the psychology there is so fascinating, and there's so much going on that drives people towards these kinds of beliefs that I've endlessly kind of, you know, people are so weird. People are so weird. Like I said in that opening passage I read, we can just bowl you over with, we're sending spaceships <laughs> into the atmosphere we're, we're building this internet where you and I can seamlessly video chat and so on. And yet half the people in America reject evolution. So it's amazing that that's the case. That's, that's so interesting to me. The way we normally think about those problems, I think is kind of reductive and uninteresting. People just sort of wave their hands and say, oh, people are stupid. But actually the truth is so much more fascinating than that. And I think it's the story we tell in this book about the way the mind works, what it's for, how knowledge is sort of distributed across community gives rise to that 
that dichotomy there. So I, that's what keeps me engaged for sure. Oh, yeah. Well, it's good that you remind people because there's so much polarization and we see it a lot, particularly in America, but everywhere. And it seems to me also at the heart of what's in your book is that we don't really know things. So it seems like maybe people who believe in conspiracy theories are unconsciously aware of their uncertainty. And here's something that explains it all. They're just looking for comfort, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I actually just wrote this paper about conspiracy theories. And I reflect on my experience attending the Flat Earth Conference in Denver a couple of years ago. And exactly what you said is one of the major things that I noted and that we talked about in the paper. And we call it coherence. And if you think about, if you're assessing the probability that some theory is true, some theory explains your observations. One way to do it would be a kind of Bayesian thinking. And you would try to figure out Given the evidence I've seen, what is the probability of the theory? And the nature of conspiracy theories is that they're improbable. Well, maybe they're not impossible, but they're improbable. Like a lot of stuff has to go right for a conspiracy theory to be correct. So if you just sort of calculate the probabilities of all this stuff in a veridical way, you're going to get to a very low estimate. And you might still say, well, maybe it's true. But if you're sort of taking that information incorrectly and doing proper updating of your beliefs, you would say this isn't very likely. Instead, what appears to happen is more of this, what we call a coherence-based assessment of likelihood, explanatory coherence. What coherence means is, do the pieces fit together? And if you think about it, all the pieces of some theory can fit together without it being likely. But when those things all come together and you go, oh my gosh, all the pieces fit together, you sort of forget about the fact that, well, overall it's unlikely. And so that's kind of a coherence thing. And one of the, one of the philosophers associated with this idea is a guy named Thagard, Paul Thagard. He created this theory and computational model that draws on a lot of other work as well, which goes back a long way in the philosophy literature. Sometimes we call this inference to the best explanation or abduction. But Thagard's term was theory of explanatory coherence, which I really like the way that he formulated that idea. And I saw a lot of that going on at the conference, you know. Someone up on stage is saying all this crazy stuff. And then they sort of with a flourish say, oh, this explains this and this explains this and everything. And, it, you know, you'd hear these audible gasps in the audience. And when you're experiencing that moment, you sort of forget about everything else. So it's like, oh my gosh, that must be true. You know? Yes, it is fascinating. You referred there that we think of the mind because it's a little bit controversial now too, where people have different perspectives on it. And you also wrote on this, that thinking through the body, you refer to the mind or the brain as working like a computer, but mm -hmm. there are alternative perspectives on that. So there's a few threads I'd love to go into. Also, it was kind of hard to take in this estimation. They were talking about capacity and brain computational capacity. We only have about a gigabyte. That's a, I mean, that's a really it's, double computer. It, it kind of depends how you measure things or what you're counting and so on. But there is this very fascinating statistic, which I learned, I happened upon a paper, which was trying to estimate sort of the storage capacity of the brain in the way that you would estimate the storage capacity of a computer. And it doesn't include everything, but it kind of includes the types of memory that you can articulate. So recall or recognition memory. And it was a guy named Landauer in the 1980s who did this work, Tom Landauer. It's an awesome paper. I definitely encourage your listeners to go read it. And, you know, people might take issue with it and so on. Uh, but he did this estimation in a variety of ways. And one thing he did was 
looked at these studies where you kind of bring people into the lab, have them study information of one type or another, ask them to recall it. Then you bring them back and you ask them to see how well they do in terms of what they remember. And then you can basically estimate a rate at which you learn. And now as a simplifying assumption, I'll just assume that you're going through life just constantly learning information and facts and so on at that constant rate. And you do that for 70 years. I can now just kind of scale it up and say, okay, what's left? Like how much information is there? And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a method that kind of makes sense to me. And he does it in a variety of different ways. So he gets to his estimate in a variety of different ways and gets slightly different numbers. But the shocking thing is when you just look at all these numbers, they're all kind of within an order of magnitude. And it was one gigabyte, which is crazy, you know, because like a little thumb drive has like 64 gigabytes. But our memories don't store information in the way that a, that a computer does. You know, when you think about a computer has a pixel representation of a photo, it's perfect, you know, the mind does not store detailed information in that way. And that's why when you say, how does a toilet work? People kind of say, oh, well, you're flush or whatever, you know, because we don't have that kind of really detailed information. So I don't know if the one gigabyte thing is exactly right. And I don't know exactly what that counts. You'll have to sort of read the paper and do your own mental accounting of, of whether you think it's reasonable or not. But for me, when I saw that, it was kind of mind-blowing. It really made me think differently about the mind. And there's a deep truth in there, I really believe. Regardless of what you think about the exact number, it just shows you that our minds are not built for storing this kind of detailed information. What they really are built for is throwing out everything we don't need. You have probably a lot of students listening to this. If they have courses where they're asked to memorize information or learn definitions and so on, ask them how long that stuff sticks around if they're not using it, right? It's like oh, two weeks after the semester, it's gone. The mind is this incredible filtration machine where it's trying to extract the meaningful, generalizable, deeper stuff so that we can efficiently store that for use later. Anything that's not useful disappears pretty quick. There are people who have actually this pathology where they actually remember everything. They have like perfect autobiographical memory. We tell stories about this in the paper, but it's sort of this quirk. It's not a normal thing. It's a very rare thing. So the mind is capable of storing a bunch more of this kind of detailed information. And you ask those people, what happened to you on a specific day 20 years ago? They can tell you exactly, right? It's all there for them. However, it gets in the way. These people have a lot of difficulties because the mind's kind of not doing what it's supposed to do, which is get rid of all that detailed information. That is very fascinating because are we the stories we tell ourselves? Are we our memories or are we our futures? All these are important questions. And then when someone has brain damage as well, and they might lose their story or self, how do we consider them? How do they consider themselves? All that's really important. I think that sometimes, as you know, speaking to people who are quite advanced in years, sometimes if you ask them their memory, it slips. Ask them what made them happy in their life. And they might be able to speak for a few minutes. Where did all the years go? Right, right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the nature of memory, right? We retain these kind of sense memories and very vague stuff. At least I do. I mean, my autobiographical memory is terrible. I actually have a pretty good memory for facts and things like that, which I think has helped me to be successful in academia because I often remember things that I've read or I'm able to draw connections between things I'm doing now versus things I studied many years ago. But if you ask me, what was the plot of this movie you saw two weeks ago? Or what happened at a dinner 
a month ago. I'm terrible. I'm actually like average on that. But the average, I think, is pretty low. I think people in general retain little pieces of our experience, you know? And it, it calls to question what you mentioned. We throw out what we don't need, but I think it still is there. We can tap into it when we need it. And yeah. I think that when you say that we don't have this full picture of the world, we think, well, let's say we have this overall kind of global vague picture, but we have like a point of focus of what we need. Yeah. I mean, if you look into the animal world, this made me reflect a lot about that. If you asked a bird, if it knew how to fly, it couldn't explain its own body. Totally. Yeah. So there's a whole set of things that we have stored somewhere that we can't articulate at all. And that would not be included in this kind of one gigabyte estimation, right? You know, I played hockey this morning. Like I'm skating around the ice. There's nothing. I couldn't tell you what my knees are doing, you know, and so on and so forth. But even this more sort of like articulable kind of memory, you're also right there that we retain something, some kind of scaffold or structure, because I'm also a musician. So like I'm a bluegrass musician, so I'm constantly learning tunes. And someone will mention a tune that I learned 10 years ago. And I'll say, oh my God, I don't remember that tune at all. However, if we start playing within a few minutes, I'll sort of find it again. I'm not relearning it completely. So there's some kind of structure deep somewhere that's allowed me to recreate that. So I don't retain all the details. And that's the nature also of like your students who are listening. If they learn some concept in their economics class, freshman year and they're juniors or seniors or whatever, they would not necessarily remember all the details of that. But if I started talking about it, they'd be able to learn it much quicker than they could the first time. So we definitely learn things that are, if they're taught in the right way, I think. If they're taught in the wrong way, we might not retain anything at all. If they're taught in a way that's sort of disembodied or just facts or unconnected definitions and those kinds of things, those might just be completely gone. I appreciate that spontaneity, which is where I believe is tapping into it and where creativity comes from. I'm also a believer in not knowing. So your book made yeah. me reflect on it, the value of not knowing, because it also allows you to appreciate the beauty and the present moment. And you also address how it's undeniable. We're coming closer to our machines. We're using our machines to think. That's also part of the collective intelligence that you touch on in your book. So what are your reflections on AI and the future of humanity and also making sure that there's certain checks in place so that it's respectful of yeah. human experience? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually have a chapter in the book on, on this kind of technology. I admit to being just a dyed-in-the-wool kind of techno-optimist. I don't know why that is, but I'm just very hopeful and optimistic about the future. And I know people are scared of like super intelligence taking over and everything. I mean, I just don't think that we're close to anything like that yet. It's not impossible. And it's something that I think we should take very seriously. But I really see AI as being this incredibly powerful, wonderful thing that is going to unlock incredible, huge amounts of economic value. And like I said, I'm maybe an optimist bordering on idealistic, but I kind of believe in this idea of abundance. And the idea of abundance is we sort of have this zero-sum perspective about economic activity where if some people have a lot of wealth, like other people can't. But if you look at the size of the, the world economy, and there's you can actually go on Wikipedia and look at estimations of this going back to 2000 BC or something like that. 
the size of the economy in terms of economic activity is an exponential function. And it's like a perfect exponential function. And what an exponential function means, as opposed to linear function, it grows in a percentage basis, not an absolute way over time, which means that to double from one to two is going to take a certain amount of time, but then the same amount of time not to go from two to three, but to go much higher, right? Because you're going in a percentage basis. And exponentials start off real slow, and then they go crazy, and they sort of go vertical. And people don't really understand exponentials. Economic activity is an exponential. What that means is that like world GDP grows in like an incredible way. And what that means is that if we can allocate that GDP in some way that's reasonable, we should be able to achieve a world where everybody is comfortable and everybody has a great amount of wealth. The problem is not actually generation of economic activity. It's allocation of that activity. And I really believe we're on the cusp of that. And AI is one big reason, because if you can get rid of a lot of labor of drudgery and jobs that people don't want to do, and you can say run a factory with a bunch of robots where people don't have to intervene that makes food or makes products or extracts resources or whatever it is, you can unlock a huge amount of economic activity. So that has the potential, I think, to usher in an era of great abundance. Now, the million dollar challenge there is what does everyone do if they're not doing those jobs and where do they actually get the money from? You know, we might have to think about things like universal basic income and so on, but I'm an optimist and I'm a real believer in AI being able to help us to unlock incredible amounts of economic activity that was sort of unimaginable 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. So that, that's where I come down on it, like more on the positive side, because I am by nature an optimist. It's very important to be optimistic and it's confidence, not overconfidence, but the ability to see one's visions through. I don't know enough about it, but everything needs governance, whether it's the environment or not. And I would like to see that kind of greater equality of access. To Let me make one, one other point about that, which is that you don't need equal allocation in the case of an exponentially growing function. All you need is to make sure that the people on the bottom are getting some. Because in this kind of maybe idealistic view of kind of an abundant world, there's plenty to go around. And it's not that you need equality. You just need to make sure that at every level that a rising tide is lifting all boats to a certain extent. So that's harder than you would think to achieve it because people are self-interested and they can be greedy. And it's not all about individuals. You know, you have systems in place that sometimes often make those things kind of difficult and so on. But it's not that you need pure equality or even equity in that case. You just need kind of a rising tide and make sure that when the tide rises, you know, that's what we've been failing at in America. People on the bottom, their income on a real basis has not increased at all. And that's what we need to avoid. It's crazy. The economy has grown incredibly, but the inequality is such that the people on the bottom, they haven't gone up really at all or very little. And so that's the real problem. You know, you just need to make it a little more equitable, I think. Indeed. And another of the questions that you pose is how do you really define smart? You know, what is true intelligence or what are the true intelligences? Because there's many ways of experiencing and being in the world. Yeah, that's great. And I apologize for talking about stuff that's not really in the book. But as you can tell, that's another area that I'm passionate 
I love digressions. <laughs> good. Okay. Yeah. So smart. We actually have a whole chapter on that in the book as well. I think that's a really important thing. I hope that one thing that the book does is that after people read it, they're sort of less hard on themselves when it comes to the questions of like, am I smart? Am I capable? And so on. And I think that the traditional, Steve and I both believe the traditional view of what it means to be smart is kind of outmoded and it's, it's overrated. So what does it mean to be smart? Like a lot of the times on an intelligence test, it's like how much I remember, how fast can I process information? Can I solve tricky word problems or anagrams? Can I solve math problems? All that kind of stuff. If you think about what that's all about, it's about this individual mental horsepower. And there's a lot of ways that people can contribute. What human beings really excel at, as I said, is group pursuit of complex goals. How do you define success? It's not like, can I individually process a lot of information? What it really is, can I participate in a group and add and help the group achieve something great? And uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And so there is this very interesting work, which has tried to define. So it, the traditional literature on intelligence, there's this very big literature in psychology. They call this idea of general intelligence, G for short. And there's this new idea of, it's not about G, but it's about your ability to help a group succeed. So if you take people and you put them on different teams, to what extent does their contribution help the team actually achieve an objective? And that's a new measure of what it means to be smart. It's not G, it's about how do I add to what the group does? And you can think about, you know, if your listeners know anything about experimental design, you can come up with a clever experimental design where you can sort of parcel out the contribution of other group members and figure out like how much you individually add to a group by sort of checking what does the group do when you're present versus not present and things like that. So there's some very careful and very interesting work on this topic of trying to define like new ways of thinking about intelligence that has to do more with, are you good at helping a group perform better as opposed to, are you able to personally process a lot of, of information? Now, I don't want to overstate this too much because, you know, people who do better on the SATs or do better on these intelligence testing. There is some correlation to important life outcomes. So I don't want to completely overstate the case. I, I don't think it's worth zero, but I think it is overrated. And I think a way that makes people feel sort of competitive about it and often kind of maybe embarrassed or like, I'm not smart enough or whatever. And I think that that's a shame because the mind is often not really built for a lot of the kinds of things that we test in these weird intelligence tests and so on. You know, so sometimes I have friends who say, oh, I have a terrible memory. I'm so embarrassed. I don't think I'm that smart. I don't remember this fact or that fact. I'm like, go look it up. Who cares? And your mind's not really built for storing all that kind of stuff. Try to figure out what it is that you really excel at and what you're good at and use that to your advantage to try to really help whatever group or organization you're involved with do better. It's okay that you're not a master of everything. In fact, that's what teams are supposed to be. Teams are supposed to be groups of individuals that have complementary skills, not groups where everybody does everything perfectly. Exactly. I'm a big fan of project-based learning. And as you said, if you tested some of their students after the course was over, would they remember if they hadn't maybe done something physical or put something out in the world? But when you've worked on it, boy, you remember everything, even the parts you didn't work on, because you had to know how those work to do your part. It's so essential. I think that readers can get a lot from your book and just questioning the things that they know and 
So as you reflect on education and the challenges we face, the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what teachers or life lessons were important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Yeah, I think it's throughout my work, I've kind of learned a kind of intellectual humility, which is a constant sort of questioning of how well do I understand things? And I think that that's really important. Like if we all live like that, not saying I do this all the time, I'm certainly guilty of hubris and overconfidence like all the time. But if we as a society were more questioning and open-minded and stuff like that, I think that we could solve some of these really challenging problems. Like I believe that this kind of polarization and extremism and counter scientific thinking and all this kind of stuff is very potentially dangerous. And we're not close to solving it and improving our discourse. We all want to. People do not want to fight. People want positive discourse. They want to get along, but we're failing. And so I, I think that if we practiced a little more humility, I think that we would hopefully be in a better position to do that. Now, what I will tell your students who are maybe younger is, okay, don't take it too far because I want you to try new things and I want you to be fearless and I want you to fail, you know? So I, I want you to try to be calibrated sometimes and don't be a jerk, be nice and be open-minded and listen to other people, but go after what you want to go after and don't let people tell you that you can't do it. Be overconfident in those cases because by trying and failing and learning from that, you're going to end up stronger than you were before. So Take these lessons to heart, but don't, don't take it too far. And we should perhaps say, since this has been a conversation about thinking in collaboration, just a little bit about your relationship with Steve Sloman that you met at Brown. Yeah. So my relationship with Steve was really fantastic. He was actually my dissertation advisor, and then it grew into a very close friendship, followed by us who've written many papers together and collaborated on a lot of research. And what I think we both appreciate about the collaboration is how much we challenge one another to think deeply and to really get things right. And so when we have conversations, it's often, are you sure you're thinking about this the right way? Like, let's really dive deeply into this and try to figure out whether we're really getting this right. And so that's what I think makes it a really great collaboration. Writing the book together was, a, was an amazing experience. So Steve's been a very important person in my life, obviously, as first being my sort of mentor into academia and now transitioning into more of this incredible collaboration that we have. Well, thank you, Professor Philip Fernbach, for your intellectual humility, opening our eyes to the knowledge illusion and the collaborative nature of learning, sharing your insights into cognition, consciousness, decision-making, and attention by helping us understand our minds and our memories. We can focus better and create positive futures. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed the conversation. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Molchaski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Mira Pala. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.